evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. I'm your host, Ian James Wright, and joining me today to discuss Great Cop from 1993's In on the Kill Taker is John Farrar, the co-host of Live on Four Legs, a podcast where he talks about a different Pearl Jam live show every week. John, welcome to the show. How's it going? Oh, thank you so much, Ian. It's it's going great. How are you? I think we're recording this episode a, a little bit ahead of time compared to how I usually do it. But yeah, right now, air quality is finally back to normal in Northern California, Bay Area, where I live. So feeling good, uh, ready to <laughs> ready to talk about some positive subject matter on this week's podcast. It's going well with you? Yeah, not too bad. I'm actually I'm on the other coast. I'm uh, I'm outside Atlanta. Uh, we've been having some uh, dealing with this this aftermath of these hurricanes and everything. But yeah, so far so good. Awesome. Well, I definitely wanted to ask you off the bat about your podcast uh, live on four legs. I gave it a listen. I, I myself like I was a teenager in the '90s, but for some reason or another, I never really connected with Pearl Jam that much. Tell me a little bit about what they mean to you and. Um, and how you decided to do this podcast. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I was I was 13 years old in in 1991, which was like the perfect time for all this stuff to break, you know, you that stuff that you you listen to when you're in your early teen years kind of sticks with you. So they were immediately something that I that I latched onto in the early days in like 91, 92, 93 like just obsessed, you know, and I kind of grew up in, in Northwest Georgia. So I was kind of on an Island. Like it wasn't, wasn't near a big city. Didn't have a lot of friends who were, who were into like alternative music or underground music. So I was kind of discovering this stuff on my own. And yeah, it was, it was, they were just such a, such a, like a break from everything that had happened before that. Like all my friends, I remember in the, in the late eighties were listening to, you know, Def Leppard and Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses. And uh, here comes this band that's like completely different in, in style and attitude and just the way they, they go about doing things. And it just immediately like struck me as, as something, you know, unique and authentic. And they were one of the bands that they were always, you know, interested in, in promoting other bands that they were into. So I think it, maybe even the first time I heard of Fugazi was when, when Ed, uh, wrote Fugazi on his arm. I think it might've been on MTV or one of the headbangers ball or something. He had written Fugazi down his arm. Uh, I also had kind of, I had an older cousin who was into, you know, like Sonic youth and dinosaur junior and the pixies and stuff. So it, it could have been through that. I don't remember, but yeah, it was, it was probably 91 or 92. And like, I, I followed them, followed them throughout the whole career. Like even in the late nineties, early two thousands, when, it was kind of in vogue to kind of follow them. Like I got really into punk and hardcore, but every time like Pearl Jam would put out a new album, I'd just drop in for a week or so, like check them out. Oh yeah, it's pretty good. And then, you know, the, the, the highlight is really the live shows. Like basically a lot like Fugazi, they, they mix up their set lists every show and like, you never know what they're going to play next. So I, I had this collection of bootlegs and the uh, the podcast actually started with uh, with my friend Randy and his friend Matt, and when Matt had to drop out uh, due to some uh, scheduling uh, conflicts, they they were looking for a co-host. So I I jumped in. I was like, hey, you know, I've I've been li- I've been living this stuff since 1991, 1992. So I'd be happy to step in, and it's it's a lot of fun, you know. Like I said, we talk about a different Pearl Jam live show every week. We talk about like the different moments, like what makes it special, and it's a lot of fun. 
Yeah, that's one aspect of Pearl Jam that I wasn't really aware of is that they're like, they're a sort of live uh, band that people obsess over their like live tapes and stuff like that. Um, I guess maybe maybe even in the vein of Grateful Dead Fish, would you say? Is that like, is that sort of the same trajectory of like people's Pearl Jam live fandom? Oh, I hate to admit it because I do not like those bands, but yeah, I think in the last in the last ten or fifteen years, they've definitely taken on that mantle of like the band that you know people follow them around on to Europe and Australia and all across the country and Canada and South America, and yeah, it's it's definitely become that sort of thing for sure. That's I've tried to get into Fish several times. Like, I, yeah, I, I I'm with you. The music has never really done it for me either but it's just something that people are so enthusiastic about that i'm like i like being really into fun things like let me give this a try again and it's just it just never takes with me i don't know um clearly talented guys but i don't know there man now that i think of it there must be a ton of podcasts about fish right you would think um, i have not listened to any of them but oh uh, there's like there's at least eight or ten pearl jam podcasts now they've been sprouting up like all over the place I'm doing a search right now. I just I just want to answer this question for myself on air. Searching for fish, all podcasts. Let's see what comes up. Under the scales, uh, helping friendly podcast, the fish cast. Yeah, there's a lot of fish. Uh, fish Friday. Woo. Okay. So yeah, moral of the story is if you're into that sort of thing, um, <laughs> there's there's a huge fandom around that. It's cool. Does Pearl Jam, do they tend to, like, pull out covers live? Are they one of those bands that has a few go-to things or, like, have a fun surprise a lot of the time and they cover a song? Any of that sort of thing tend to happen at every show? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, they've they've taken on, like, Bob O'Reilly by The Who and Rockin' in the Free World by Neil Young and Kick Out the Jams and MC5. Like, But they, they will break out anything. They've done Dead Kennedys covers. They've done Germs cover. They've done... X covers, you know, they, it runs the whole spectrum. And they have actually, in the early days, they actually used to cover Fugazi a lot. They would do, he would do clips of suggestion as like an intro to some of their songs, or they would, he would sing the first couple of lines of Bad Mouth before a song. They've tagged Reclamation in the middle, in the end of Daughter a few times back in the 90s. So yeah, they all, all the time. Wow. Yeah, I I had read about, I mean, there's this famous story about Eddie Vedder that he was on, I forget exactly how it goes, you probably remember, but he's on, he was on some kind of tour of DC and he was like sort of unenthusiastic about it and he's just told the person driving, like, look, can you just drive me, show me where Ian MacKay lives? Because like that's the, <laughs> that's the thing he wanted to see right. at DC. Oh, and yeah, the famous story too is the night that, that they found Kurt Cobain, like they, Pearl Jam was playing in Fairfax and I think he had trashed his hotel room or something, so he ended up staying at the Discord house that night and like staying up all night and talking to Ian. Like they became friends. Wow, hmm. that's yeah. pretty cool. Maybe yeah. maybe Eddie will be on this show. Um, hey, if anyone's if in I, touch I, with if Eddie, if I had some pull, I'd, I'd give you a pull. But I don't have <laughs> I don't have that kind of connections. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Stranger things have happened. Yeah. Um, well. So that's the Pearl Jam side. Do you want to also uh, give me a little summary of your relationship with Fugazi as a fan? Oh, of course. Like Fugazi is my favorite band, period, hands down. Like I, like I, I love Pearl Jam. I and a lot of other bands, but Fugazi is always the number one. Like they're just, they're just the best. Like ever since I heard them, I think I probably the first 
record that I remember hearing, like at, when it came out, was was Killtaker, and that Im- immediately became my favorite album at the time. And yeah, I mean, it's just being you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old, like you're you're searching for some kind of authenticity in something, you know, and you're like, oh, you go to church, like yeah, no, that's not it. School, uh, no your parents like at home life like no not not really like looking at tv like yeah no but then along comes this music and it's like they're not trying to sell you anything it's there's there's not a lot of interviews you have to go searching for the stuff they just they seem to be going out of their way not to sell you things in some ways exactly and yet it immediately just grabbed me and they i was immediately in from the very beginning and they've they've been my number one favorite band for god 25 years at least yeah, it's it's amazing how they uh, they claim a part of your mental uh, emotional life. Oh yeah, it just becomes part of you, man. This music, like if you, if it hits you at a certain point in your life, or if you if it hits you at a certain time in your life or a circumstance, like it will stick with you forever. Yeah, certainly has me. Uh, and here we are, uh, some uh, eighteen years after they stopped playing, talking today about Great Cop which is a song, as I said, from In On The Kill Taker. It's actually the shortest song on In On The Kill Taker at 1 minute 52 seconds. Probably will not surprise listeners to hear that factoid. Uh, It is a pretty brisk little number. Um, So, well, let me kick it over to you, John. What do you think is the first thing you want to discuss when it comes to this song? Uh, Just like it's it's so fast. It's almost like uh, a reaction, I think, to steady diet like that they started playing the song in in 91 like late 91 and i think like you, you've talked about with some of your guests how you know steady diet was kind of a rough time for them like in the they were producing it themselves and maybe they weren't real happy with the with the end result i think this is just something where like it almost harkens back to like the minor threat like the early dc hardcore years you know it it does have some little touches that that differentiated from that of course but it's it's almost something that like it maybe I got to think it was like born out of frustration or something like let's just write a simple fast one and and <laughs> and get this writing process going you know yeah so i guess we should touch on that uh because it does in fact harken back to the old days in some very important ways namely that uh it's actually an older like the core of it is an older piece of music that that ian wrote way back in the day uh, in 1981 he says, there's actually, there's a good story about it in Joe Gross's book, friend of the show, Joe Gross, his 33 and a third in on the Killtaker book. Uh, again, this is another episode where I'm tempted just to, you know, steal a lot <laughs> from it, but I'm, I'm going to try to leave some of it a mystery to entice you to buy the book. But yeah, there's basically a story in Joe Gross's book about, he was like at, at Discord House or whatever, and Ian plays him a skewballed rehearsal tape. This is a band that never played a show that he was in. Um, but he he put on this rehearsal tape and there's like this great cop riff on it that happens that they were playing around with and it hadn't obviously formed into this exact song, but that was the core of it. Uh, then he played Joe at an embrace tape and the great, the great cop riff was there and then an egg hunt tape and same deal. So there are all these bands that Ian was in where they sort of tossed it around and it never really developed into a full song, never made it onto any kind of a, an actual record. Um, but uh, yeah, finally it came to light here on this 1993 release. 
So yeah, J- Joe makes sort of a point about like the the point is to never throw anything away, uh, which is a nice lesson to take from this song, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's that's stuff like that. You know, stays with you. You, know, you may you might hear it on a tape, and it just comes back. Like you can, they were able to kind of recapture that original feeling of it. It's it's an amazing song, one of my favorites. Yeah, I wonder if it's something about that that riff being written back in more like the the earlier hardcore days. That just something about that energy just uh, just stayed. Like it's it's not the sort of thing that evolves as you get older it's like you wrote it when you're young it's always going to have this sort of energy and make you tap back into it so when they pulled this back out it's like okay we're (laughs) we're writing this real like bruiser of a a quasi hardcore song it had to have been such a jolt too i mean can you imagine being in the room like when they when they he first brought it back like hey guys like you know just had this thing it's been kicking around for a while let's just see if we can work (laughs) something out of it and they finally like pull it together and it's and it's this and you're there it had to have been like yeah it had to have been a jolt of of electricity to be like okay we're we're on to something now <laughs> yeah and i imagine maybe part of it is like this would be this would be a good little thing to introduce into our set it's like it's sort of a different tempo it's shorter it has a a, a slightly different energy than most of the rest of our set so it's one of those nice things like within the flow of a live show as in within the flow of an album that uh it, it's nice to have sort of fast things sort of slow things short things long things uh like sort of in the same way that you're if you're writing uh, a, a piece it's you vary your sentence lengths and that makes it just more engaging than having just some sort of staccato kind of delivery of the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I mean, from what and what from what I could find out, they they debuted it December eighth, nineteen ninety one, at a DC Space show. It was the third Kill Taker song to make its debut. I think Fasted Squared had made its debut a couple of days before, and they'd been playing Last Chance for a Slow Dance for a couple of months. But it it debuted as an instrumental for the first few times they played it before the lyrics were fully formed. So it's something where, yeah, they, they, I think they, they even might've even opened with it at that show Hmm. just to come out and be like, Hey, you know, here's this, here's this new thing that we, (laughs) we just put together. It doesn't even have words yet, but let's just play it. Yeah. I mean, so in terms of the music, that might be a good segue to talk about that. I wonder how much we can say about the music in this. It is incredibly straightforward for a Fugazi song. Um, the first thing that comes to mind to me is just it, like every every sound in it is sort of the platonic ideal of punk rock almost. Uh, it's like it sounds like the snares tuned really high and it's like really penetrating. The like just the guitars are crazy distorted. It sounds just like an amp turned all the way up and you know Ian going nuts on it. Yeah, same with Joe's Joe's bass line. It's just like all the, all the elements are very simple. Um, but they're almost the best the best versions of those elements in a in your classic punk song. And like I said too, I think there's a couple of things that that differentiate it. I think at the beginning, when I think when every instrument gets a gets a little chance to to spotlight before it all kicks in, right? Like the the guitars, then then Joe comes in, then Brendan does his little fill to come in, and then that amazing like just staccato part right before the stop where he's just 
hitting that those downstrokes just it's one of the that's one of the best like breaks that they have that that anybody has that that moment before it kicks back in together it's it's the anticipation the tension of it it's really well put together yeah i agree and so the first instrument in this song is actually the bass right I believe so. Yeah. Yes. So what I'm hearing is the first thing that happens is Joe, uh, he's playing bass, but he's the first time he's playing harmonics, which are uh, for anybody who doesn't play like a string instrument. It's this weird thing where you know usually if you, you know, when you're playing bass, say you you put your uh, finger down somewhere on the fretboard so the the string is touching a fret and that determines what pitch it is. But there are also these spots throughout the string where based on physics um, you can sort of just touch your finger onto the string without pushing it all the way down and you you pluck it and it rings out Um, so like you can do that in in the exact middle of the string at the 12th fret um, and you can you can sort of do it at these other places like the seventh fret there's one like at the sort of fifth and one of the I forget, like the 3.2 or something like that. But it sounds like that's what Joe is doing at the very beginning. So it it's sort of this brighter little, it doesn't really almost sound like a bass at all, um, which is an interesting and very gentle way to start such a such a rough and, and hard song. Is like, I usually think of harmonics as little, little twinkly, high, gentle sort of notes. Yeah, especially especially bass harmonics too. You almost never hear bass harmonics. For among among bass players, there's a very famous uh, musician named Jaco Pastorius, who like probably outside of people who are into playing bass, he's not very well known. But for bass nerds, he's he's a big name. Um, this like crazy talented jazz player. He has this song called "Portrait of Tracy," that the entire opening riff of it is just a flurry of harmonics and he never actually frets any notes so it's it's just this crazy descending uh interesting thing um so yeah i'll i'll put that in the show notes so you can check it out but that also made me think of it opens with these harmonics on the bass and then as what you were just talking about this sort of staccato thing that's also harmonics on the guitar um ian's playing uh, i i think it's ian maybe it's both of them but they're playing these sort of like uh, harmonic chords i want to say like they're like uh, laying a finger down across all the strings at one at one place on the fretboard um and just making them all all the strings ring with harmonics like that so he's like and that's how it ends right before that uh that pause and that very last blast of of sonic assault so i was i listened to the song a few times and i was wondering i wonder if this is a very clever subconscious way of fooling you into thinking that's the end of the song because right it starts with harmonics on bass it ends with harmonics on the guitar so maybe that's just one little extra element that makes your brain think okay the song is over and then uh nope turns out here's this one little last explosion uh what do you what do you think is that a reach yeah i know i think that 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 makes sense yeah i mean it's it would be a nice bookend the the front and back it'd be a nice way to tie it all together but oh yeah when it when it comes back in after after that stop like oh it's it's the best you know 15 or 20 seconds in their catalog it's up there for me like just as far as power and especially live too like they would just tear the song apart yeah this this is one of those songs where (laughs) i think if you were 
putting together a, a fantasy Fugazi uh, set list in your head that you, if you could, if you could have your wish to see them live one last time and uh, be able to put together your own set. This is essential. Well, that's actually a good segue because I did actually get to request this song at a Fugazi show one time. Oh, really? How did how did this come about? Yeah, so this is uh, the only two times I got to see them in, were in 1999 in Atlanta and Athens uh, here in Georgia. I think you had a guest that had mentioned he was at these shows uh, a, a few months ago, too, which is kind of cool. But, yeah, so I was working at the college radio station at the University of Georgia, WUOG, and so my idea was, okay, I'll, I'll go to the Atlanta show and I'll I'll talk to them because I used to carry around a little cassette recorder. So like I was going to talk to them after the show and get them to like record a little sound bite for the for the station. Like, hey, you know, this is Ian from Fugazi and you're listening to WOG, blah, blah, blah. I used to carry it around all the time to shows. So and then I was like, well, I'll, I'll see if they I had a I had a shift scheduled for the afternoon of, of the next night, the night of the show. So I'll see if they want to just come by and and play some songs or like do like a takeover. Like we have we have like all these cool vinyl records and all these CDs. Like I'll just come let them play whatever they want. We can like talk a little bit and it'll just be a cool, like fun little thing. So I go to the Atlanta show, talk to them. They're like, yeah, you know, we'll we'll let you know. We're not real sure. Like we got some friends in town. Like we 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 might not have time. I was like, yeah, you know, it's totally cool. Like short notice. Like I'm not I'm not gonna force myself onto onto Fugazi on one day's notice, of course. So then the next day, uh, they were they were nice enough to call and be like, I think it was Brendan that called and was like, hey, you know, yeah, we we got stuck talking to some friends. We we're just hanging out. Like sorry, we couldn't make it. I was like, hey guys, it's fine. Like don't don't worry about it. No problem. But I ended up playing i think three hours of fugazi on the radio that day like i just did all fugazi on my shift uh to kind of get excited for the show so we get to the show and they get to the encore and ian stops the show and he says you know i just realized something you're on your fifth fucking hour of us today and i'm in the front row you can see i think (laughs) one of the one of the pictures on the on the Fugazi live series page for the show, you can see me like with a mohawk and glasses, like right in front of Ian on right in front of the monitor. And he goes, is, you know, is, is there anything we can do for you? Like, I, I feel like that, that deserves something. I'm paraphrasing, you know, you right. can play or whatever. And, and he goes, was there, is there a song you, you want to hear? And immediately my mind goes, goes to great cop. So, and he, I think there was, there was a big shout from the crowd. Like everybody, he's like, Oh, we're taking requests now. So everybody <laughs> started screaming. He goes, all right, calm down, calm down. The DJ has a request. So he, uh, he, I, I, you know, I, I'm like shaking nervous. I'm still like kind of nervous thinking about it 21 years later. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of like, I, I blurred out like great cop. And he goes, you know, I usually intro the song by saying, you'd make a great cop, you fucking pig. Like he always did. You know, that was the yeah. classic intro yeah. to the song. And then they just rip into it. And they'd already been playing for two hours. Like the, this is like one of the last, <laughs> last songs of the night. So yeah, I just remember, like I'll always remember that moment of just like, just beating on the stage. Like is one of, one of the coolest moments of my life. And I was lucky to, that it was recorded and then I have it for posterity. That's so awesome. Make sure, um, after we record, send me, uh, a link to which show that was and yeah. uh you should um <laughs> if you can't like you should like download that picture and 
sort of draw a red circle around it and send that to me and i'll put that in the show notes too so people can can see your uh, my my 21 year old self yeah as yeah opposed to my 42 year old self now. yeah that's yeah. awesome no i yeah it's like same i've i've been on the live series page and like looked through uh you know books of photographs of them like where they where they're playing fort reno or whatever just like desperately trying to find myself in the crowd but i've never been able to find a photo that mm. had me in it so right that's that's right. pretty good did, did now did you purchase all the shows did, did you do the whole collection like spend the whatever how much money it is no i've i've only uh i've downloaded a few shows like notable ones and ones that i was at myself uh but i Right. I haven't gotten the all access pass. Oh, I've been I've been wanting to do it. It's it's been tempting me. I know like I think for a while Ian was writing handwritten letters to everyone who who signed up for it. Uh, so I I'm thinking I might at some point <laughs> it might be worth it, but it would just be so cool to sit there and go through their whole live history like one show at a time. Yeah, right. Hey, that sounds like another podcast you could start. I was going to say, yeah, that that that's right <laughs> up my alley. If you want to after you're done, if you want to if you want to pivot into that, we can we can talk. Oh man, we'll we'll have to see if I like I I don't know if I could ever be burnt out on Fugazi, but who knows, by the time this ends, I I, I don't know. But <laughs> I'll certainly be a guest, that's for sure. <laughs> um it's a great live song and they're good there are a lot of good live versions that can be seen on YouTube. There's a there's a good version on Instrument also, uh, Jim Cohen's film, where I I think it does it cut off before the end. I'm trying to remember. Um, I don't know, but it might have the last few seconds cut off. Yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, it's a uh, but it's it's great footage that, um, I don't know, Jim Jim's camera. It's it's great to have up on stage, like as opposed to all these sort of camcorder things from the audience that you see just over the tops of people's heads. Um, but he's like right in there. You can see just like the, the sweat on their arms. Like they're, they're really working on this one. This is like, this is how they're, they're, they're like really earning the money for the shows. Like when they're just like blasting through great cop and, uh, just putting their all into it. I love to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we could talk about the lyrics too. A little bit in the same vein as the music, there's not that much there in, in terms of like volume of words. It's sort of, they're not that many words and like it's repeated. The second verse is the same as the first. But elephant in the room is that uh, we're talking about cops and it's a, it's a hot topic uh, this year. As we record, it's still the year 2020. This episode might come out uh, next year actually. But um, in any case, uh, just in just in case there are people listening to this in the far future and they need just sort of a time capsule summation of of where we stand, this particular year has sort of been a flashpoint. There have been some very highly publicized and uh, highly visible instances of police brutality and police murder, especially of black people that probably the two that are that have been most talked about this year are George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I think that's probably safe to say. So on one hand, I don't know if I want to get too into the weeds on that because this song only tangentially seems to be about uh, the police. But on the other hand, it's it's not exactly something I can ignore. So I, I feel like I should at least say that to give people context if they're listening in the future. Um, basically, we're at a moment where 
we're having a nationwide reckoning about what the role of police should be, what they should be able to do, how they should be expected to act in the capacity of uh, of doing their jobs and and what they can get away with, basically. Yeah, I mean, like like I said, the song is is more about like the interpersonal relationships between people who are seems to be antagonistic towards each other. Um, but yeah, you, you'd be, yeah, you, you have to talk about it, especially with everything that's gone on this year. You're absolutely right. So I do have a couple of relevant quotes that I guess I should. So, uh, to go back to Joe Gross's book, just to summarize it, he, he says in that book, it's about, um, apparently he was, he made some sort of a negative comment. Uh, Ian McKay did about a restaurant to a friend of his and then it sort of got back to him like somebody else yelled at him for saying that about this restaurant so that's how he found out well this person that i said that to is not a person that i can trust really it's uh somebody sort of went behind my back and used that as like a piece of gossip or whatever um and now i'm i'm hearing it again so (laughs) one of my thoughts is man how shitty must it feel to be the person that this song was written about? <laughs> oh man. Like Yeah, that that's not something you can get over. No, like that that's it. That's uh that that ends you pretty much. It is interesting to think about how like the the title line of this song, You'd Make a Great Cop, is like something that among some people would could be said in total earnest as a compliment. But in this context, it's just like a withering insult. Oh, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's biting. Like, yeah, it's, this is not something you, I, I would not want to be the person on the other end of this no. conversation. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you, you figure they must know it's about them, right? Especially that, like, that, that story has been told in a, in a published book. Right. Um, yeah. And so there's also, a an interview on uh from hybrid magazine i might just sort of read the whole thing and and edit it afterwards if if because it it is a little bit long um but i'll i'll just relate the relevant part of that interview here so the interviewer asks uh says you grew up with henry rollins and he of course has lots of anger towards the police and fugazi has some anti-cop lyrics here and there like that song you'd make a great cop do you think you have a negative view towards the police? Ian says, I have a negative view towards anybody who uses violence to enforce their will, of course. Hypothetically, the police job description, the idea of protecting the people, that is nice, and I applaud people who put themselves in a position of perhaps danger to help people. But by and large, my experience with police is they're just fucking bullies with guns, and they have the weight of the law behind them. I would say that my feelings about police are consistently suspicious. Ironically, the song You'd Make a Great Cop isn't actually about a cop, but the point is that cops don't trust people, and I don't like to be distrusted. I don't appreciate that, and I think that if you approach the public in a position of distrust, then we have a problem in the relationship. If you're calling to interview me and I distrust you, then I'm not going to answer your questions in an honest way, because I'm just thinking that you're just trying to fuck me over. The same way, if you have the situation in a society when the people who hire, uh, who you hire, you pay their wages, they don't trust you then it's just a very unhealthy situation. I think that police culture, particularly now that it's moved away from a neighborhood-based policing thing to a much more professional style, which is basically quasi-military, 
this is evident by the fact that police routinely refer to the people in this country as civilians, which of course is wrong. Police are in fact civilians. There's the military, and then the police who are the civilian security force. But when you see the police start referring to people as civilians, you can see that they've been militarized. And they've been militarized anyway. They've been armed to the teeth, by and large, by this absurd so-called war on drugs, which is a bunch of bullshit. So yeah, I'm not a big fan of the cops. Is that your question? Interviewer says, Yeah, basically what I was trying to get at was, I'm a fan of yours and Rollins, and I understand a lot of where you're coming from, but that was the one thing I've never understood. I mean, I was a white kid who grew up in the suburbs, sure, but I've had pretty good experiences with cops. Ian says, I've had good experiences with cops too, but I've also seen things that are completely reprehensible. For instance, you look at the civil rights era and you see the way that police are just cracking people's heads, or you look at the anti-war movement in the 60s and see the role they're playing. They're the tools, they're the pawns, they're the front line. The people are fighting for something that is right and just, and they are trying to convince the government, the people representing this country, that you do not agree with something that this country is doing. They send out the police, and then you end up having to fight the police, and this is absurd, this is not a good role. Obviously, you're a kid in the suburbs, cops are nice, they teach you something, they get your cat out of the tree, that's fine. I agree with that, I like that idea of it. I'm talking about this whole other role which is becoming really what they do. Now, maybe you've had positive experiences with the police. Henry Rollins, on the other hand, has not. When he was in Black Flag, they were being harassed and hounded by the police. Their shows were being shut down regularly. And in L.A., the police culture there is disgusting. I mean, I've been damn near dragged out of the car by the police in L.A. for nothing. Interviewer says, that would certainly change my views. Ian says, hell yeah, and the thing is, like, I'm a white guy, and I've, I've had to struggle and come to terms with the way I've been treated. People who are not white, they get seriously fucked with, and it's just ridiculous, it's disgusting. It's a disgusting culture, frankly. But if you look at my lyrics, you don't see me saying things like fuck the cops or shoot the cops. That's not my thing, that's not my style. See, I don't hate humans, I actually love humans. I hate the habits of humans. I hate the habits of the police, they're the ones with the guns. This is always going to be the way. And it's discouraging because it makes them always right. And of course, they have the entire legal system behind them. The damn police, man, they're a pain in the ass. Whew. End of quote. So. Man, that, that could have been written last week. Like, still. Yeah. Very, very relevant. Any particular thoughts on that? And uh, if, you, if you'd like to say, what have your experiences with police been? Uh, ever been arrested? Anything like that? Uh, no, luckily, luckily very little, you know. Uh, growing up in the in more of a rural suburb. I didn't have to deal with it a lot. You know, there were a couple of times when, like, when my band, my I was in a punk rock band back late 90s, early 2000s, and a couple of times we would get uh, pulled over. The cops would show up to a show or something, but, you know, we were always able to kind of talk our way out of it. But, yeah, I mean, just hitting on that, that the role change, like the militarization, you know, be, becoming this, you know, like he says, like a quasi-military force, as opposed to like the community policing model that it was, that it was based on, or it should be the the ideal of it is. Yeah, I mean that that's the core of it, absolutely. Yeah, one one wishes, <laughs> like one wishes there you were back in the days when I don't know. I feel like you watch old movies and there's just like you know a cop walking down the street. Uh, checking stuff out looking to see if anything's yeah. weird is going down uh if you need his help you know he's there to he's walking around he probably knows everybody in the neighborhood he understands what normal is for that neighborhood 
And uh, but see, I, th- I think that's I think that's almost too idealized as well. I think we all got that from you know watching Andy Griffith reruns or whatever. But you know, if you go back and look, like you know, it's it's come to light. People have people have done the research. You know, smarter people than me. You know, the the police force is actually has its roots in like runaway slave patrols you know back in the back in the 1800s like that was their job to go round up runaway slaves and it's it's kind of transitioned throughout the the last two centuries century and a half even into this police force that we have now i mean it's a linear progression from from that to this and it's it's scary yeah that's absolutely true i think i was one other reason that i'm thinking that is uh very recently, actually, my father was doing some genealogy type research and uh, he sort of found this guy who was a police sergeant in Patterson, New Jersey in uh, like, I guess, early 1900s. Um, so but anyway, he was able to find all these news clippings about this guy. And it's sort of like it's funny to read. A lot of it is like sort of, you know, community beat things. It's like uh, some. Some guy was doing something uh, weird and like uh, Sergeant Draper was walking by and, and uh, you know, set the young man to rights and blah, blah, blah. Um, funny style of writing back then, too. But w- one particular thing that came out, like apparently this this guy was like pretty straight and narrow sort of guy. One item was that he busted a fellow cop for like basically drinking on the job he like went into a bar or something like that and this ancestor of mine sergeant draper uh reported him testified at his his trial and this guy was punished and i'm like that would never happen today like the thing about police today is they cover for each other like you know in in any case like in up to and including murders and like that's maybe the biggest problem we have Oh yeah, the whole the whole qualified immunity thing. Like yeah, they they can do whatever they want. One other angle that I come at this from is I'm I'm not currently working as a teacher, but that's sort of like my something I've done for many years. It's my if I if I have a trade, then that's it. And like this the whole resistance that we see among the police to like being held accountable, being expected to hold their fellow police officers accountable. It's like I think like we have we have things in place to make sure that teachers uh, are not like child molesters, right? <laughs> we like right. Uh, we all like if you're a teacher, you have to go through like training about being a mandatory reporter, for instance, right? You know what to look for. You if like one of your fellow teachers or somebody who works at a school is engaging in like suspicious behavior, you have an obligation, uh, a legal obligation to report that. And, and that's important, right? Because uh, child abusers are attracted to professions like teaching. Like it's how they pass in, in life. It's like they, they sort of pick something like that, like being a teacher, being a, a priest or whatever, so they can, so, so that it, it's normal for them to access, be around children. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. So, so to be even more vigilant is necessary. And like, but think about the kinds of people who are attracted to policing, you have to be vigilant about that too. Like the idea that you can carry around a gun and boss people around. Um, we, we need to be super like on the, on the lookout for the kind of person who's into that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's almost like the, you know, you get these, all you have to do is pass the, the exam or whatever, you know, there, 
I've always thought there should be like you would ha- you should have to go to college and like major in policing or major in law enforcement, and you should have to like go through you should have to study cases and go through training and like there should be a lot more you know vetting of these people you know like like there is with teachers and like a lot of other like a lot of other professions you're absolutely right there is as we speak a a bill that is not yet uh technically dead it's called the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act which is a a bill that was drafted by Democrats in in the United States Congress and uh, introduced in the in the House of Representatives. It moved forward in the House, uh, mostly along like party line uh, party line vote. Um, but in the Senate, uh, they're not bringing it forward for floor debates, right? So it's just sort of uh, destined to die there. Um, and even if it if it did come for debates, it would be voted down and then. Uh, of course, it would be vetoed if it happened to pass the Senate. But uh, there, a couple of the provisions of this bill, yeah, like ending or at least restricting qualified immunity that you referred to. Um, there is one. One point is to establish a federal registry of police misconduct complaints and disciplinary actions, um, because one big problem is when if a cop actually does get in trouble for something. Um, he's often just shuffled around, even if he gets like fired, um, he often gets hired by a police department, you know, 20 minutes down the road. So, um, yeah, it's, there's so many ways for, um, the police to get away with misconduct and that's crazy. And one of the crazy things is at this moment in American politics, like, of course the American right wing has simplified the issue to simply like, quote, support the police. It's like I'm a candidate who supports the police. That's yeah, the that, back that, back the blue movement with like the yeah. blue line flag and all that. But it's one of those things that's so dumbed down uh, that like yeah, I mean I support the police too. I I like I support uh, police that don't abuse their power and who uh, who make sure that none of their fellow police officers abuse their power either. Like I support that kind of police officer, but uh, any. It's it's one of those things where any sort of subtlety is like okay I get you just don't support the police you're just making it harder for them to do their job, um, and uh, of course it's it's one of those classic scenarios where the simplest argument is the easiest to make so uh, it I think that <laughs> it's hard it's hard to tell in this country sometimes uh, how much of it is uh, people are swayed by the dumbed down argument and how many people are just like. Yeah, you know, uh, I think maybe uh, the blacks deserve to be murdered more. Um, I, I can't tell. I hope it's more of the former, but I really can't tell at this point. Yeah, and it, and we're almost to the point where if any if any of the quote unquote good cops were out there doing those things you were saying, they would have quit by now. Like I know that here in Atlanta there were a few that that resigned, but I mean we're we're almost past that point where that that old style model of, of policing is just not going to happen. Like from my point of view, like, yeah, the police need to be defunded. There needs to be a radical restructuring of the way that we, we think about policing and we, it needs to be more community based and more, you know, more based in social workers and, you know, things like that. And, and, you know, and we're not going to solve it here on this, on this podcast, but there there's, we're definitely at the time, like you said, at the beginning, there's, we're definitely at a reckoning in this country and, I don't think it I don't think it can go back to the way it was like something has got to give. 
Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's so entrenched. Uh, the system is so um, seemingly intractable at this point that, yeah, as I said, almost it seems like the only way for police to be held accountable is for people to make a huge deal about it, including large demonstrations, sometimes even including riots. But then the other side turns around and is like, well, you're you're an unruly mob of rioters. This invalidates your point entirely. It's like, I don't think about that. You know, the, the cops that you talked about, Breonna Taylor, like they they got off on the grand jury, right? Like that their the charge wasn't even was even held up. So they're they went they went free, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um and like there was a, there was a pretty big some pretty big riots based after that. Yeah, I believe the the only indictment that was made was for an officer oh. who recklessly shot like into another apartment. Uh, That's right, reckless <laughs> endangerment or something. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's it's I I know I said we I didn't totally want to get into the weeds, <laughs> but it's hard to avoid. But but I guess that speaks to the point of being made in this song, where like it's not only that a cop is a sort of person who distrusts you intrinsically but he's also the sort of person who is involved with this vast apparatus of like a legal system that that has his back whenever possible when that whenever there's any shadow of a doubt um so it's not even one person that you're dealing with it's uh it's it's a huge system that seems uh, uh like basically something that can't be defeated yeah, and and you talked about you know there's there's not a lot of lyrics to the song. I think that's where we we were, but it's so pointed and it's so direct a lot more than any a lot of other songs that they have. And and Fugazi can do direct very well, but just you know got a lot of questions for me. Got your finger pointed at me. Distrusted. Look for wires when I'm talking to you. You'd make a great cop. You know that's it. And there's there's not much else that needs to be said. I mean that is that that. That describes the whole scene. You can fill in the blanks in your head based on just those five lines. Yes, and I like how this is one of those Fugazi songs that has a popular sort of legend built up around it or, or perception. Uh, in this case, there's there's this perception, I think, that this was written about a particular uh, journalist, like somebody from Spin Magazine who uh, showed up and, and was trying to interview them and they didn't really want to do an interview with Spin Magazine because it's so corporate and they had all these gross ads and, and whatever in it. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, there, there, there's this, like, idea that Ian wrote the song about that experience and, like, not trusting the motives of this particular person uh, who is who's trying to interview him. Um, but, of course, it seems like that's not the case. He, den- he denies that uh, as per Joe Gross's book. Um, but it's one of those Fugazi songs, and and there seem to be definitely a few of them that people ha- have this idea of. It turns out isn't quite what he's talking about at all. But it's an example of how it's nice that Fugazi songs, even ones that seem so direct, can like people can interpret them various ways. Yeah, and, and I mentioned too, like they he would always intro it live with that line, like "You'd make a great cop, you fucking pig." Yeah, like every single time, and it's just yeah, it's it's. It's just one of the one of the I hate to say like you know an insult, but it's it's almost like one of the the most direct ways you can tear someone down is to is to call them that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like that gets to the root of it. Let me go to social media and give some of the 
listeners to this podcast from our Facebook page, uh, a little bit of a voice. Colin Mack says, personal favorite, covered this song with my band back in the mid-2000s. Sam Roberts says, this and Smallpox Champion were on a cassette compilation a friend did for me, and the first Fugazi songs I ever did here. Got your finger pointing at me. Um, Brian maybe points out one of the, yeah, one of the shows that uh, he was at. Ian introduced the song that way as, you'd make a great cop, you fucking pig. And a friend of the show, Junter Hobbits, he actually discusses something that was in Joe Gross's book too, uh, but this is an account from somebody who was there instead of Ian. So uh, he he's points out that as per a certain David Brown, who shared his personal experience of the event, quotes, this show is amazing. The guys working security that night were total meathead jocks. They were roughing up kids all night. My buddy Tim got thrown out for stage diving and Ian immediately stopped the show and went outside to get Timmy back into the show. Ian says, we usually don't do this, but... And they proceeded to play Great Cop again, only this time the kids went nuts with all the stage diving. Um, I always thought that was cool that although Fugazi always took a very serious stance against being disrespectful in regards to personal space, for this one song, everyone seemed to be unified and going nuts, as it really seemed to uh, irritate the dickhead bouncers. So, um, that's a good example of, and yeah, if you want to see, to read about Ian's uh, perspective of that same exact show... Um, go ahead and buy Joe Gross's book, but th- that might be a, a a one-time thing. As for I don't think I've ever heard of them playing um, the same song twice at a show, so that could be a superlative for Great Cop. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't heard of that either. That's cool. Why don't we go ahead and talk about ratings? Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? So. John Farrar, you've listened to the show. You know that we like to rate uh, the song at hand out of uh, five stars, but purely in the context of the Fugazi catalog. How do you think this stacks up against the rest of their songs? Yeah, this is a, this is a good question because I think we, from what I've listened to, you know, I, we might have a little discrepancy here uh, from what I've what I've heard you talk about. But for me, I think there's. There's maybe 15 Fugazi songs that that get a perfect five out of five, and this is one of them. Five out of five. Excellent. Um, yeah, I, I think you're referring to. I think I've mentioned on the show before that the sort of hardcore side of Fugazi isn't like that's not what I love about them. Um, right. I'm usually here for the other stuff, but this song is an exception. I think like <laughs> the the energy of it is so undeniable. It's it's just. It's like the platonic ideal of a fast and angry punk song for me. Um, yeah, like you're you're right that it's not the the kind of Fugazi song I usually go for, but uh, given its inherent quality, I'm gonna go like uh, I'm gonna go four point five. It's way high up there. And as I said, as as far as a live song, it's one of the ones that you definitely want to see. Um, it just just listening to some of the live versions before we recorded this episode makes me wish I could be back in time at one of those shows for that song, you know, jumping around with the crowd and, you know, bumping into people like, like we used to do in the old days. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I got to hear it the one time. I mean, I had to request it, but I got it. Yeah. That's an amazing story. One other thing I wanted to mention, I think I've, I've meant to say this earlier, but I forgot is that this song is on the Steve Albini demo, which you can find 
here and there on YouTube. Uh, Do you get a chance to listen to that? I have heard it before. Like I've, I listened to those a lot back in the back when they first were were leaked, I guess. But I didn't get a chance to go back to it. But I don't remember it being very different. It's not very different. The like the structure of the song is absolutely there. It's um, sonically, it's a little different. I would say, I would say their performance is rougher on the Albini demo. Uh, it's not as sort of as together as on the final album. Uh, it's also the sound is not really as present. I want to say. I, yeah. although I don't I don't want to you know it's it's I'm sure it's just unmastered and it's not the the version that Steve would have released uh but uh Ian's vocals however they might even be better on the demo he he does such a great job on the record version and on the demo version I can't really tell it's also maybe in the Albini demo slightly easier to hear both guitars or like to differentiate them um it it, it almost is hard to to tell that there are two guitars playing at all on the um on the album version so that's kind of interesting and uh if you're inclined to check that out listeners if you if you don't scruple at listening to an illicit leaked demo um it's on youtube to be found well that kind of makes sense as far as that whole thing because wasn't the 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 final thought it was those performances were not as tight as they they thought they could be and that they they spent a lot of time like just kind of goofing off and they thought it was good but they they realized they needed someone with like a more discerning ear, not like a friend to, to go at, to go and, and master those songs. And maybe, you know, when they, when they went back and recorded it, they wanted the guitars to be a little sound, a little closer together and to make like that, make a more cohesive, you know, guitar tone sound. So yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the version I remember reading is that I think they had the impression that the sessions went super well, but just like listening back to the results of it, on the drive back to DC, they're like, ah, I don't think we're feeling it. Um, right. But yeah, it's always interesting to imagine w- what they took away from that. Uh, Cause I, I don't think they've commented on that exactly, but yeah, just, just to imagine, okay, here's what we should do differently with great cop. And yeah, you might be exactly right. Like maybe we should have these guitars sound like one giant guitar instead. So, Sounds like we both love the song. Let me give you a chance to do some plugs. We mentioned your podcast. I'll certainly link that in the show notes. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, where can listeners reach you, etc.? Um, yeah, the, I mean, just real quick, the the podcast, I always try to drop Fugazi references whenever I can. So if, if people are interested in that, please go check it out. It's again, it's live on four legs, uh, the number four, if you, if you're even, you know, tangentially interested in Pearl Jam, you know, it's, it's a, I like to think it's a good listen and it's different every week. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, my, I know I don't, I don't really, you know, do a lot of promotion, but if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at against the seventies. I, uh, I, if you just want to like, hear me like retweet things that make me sad and angry, that's usually what that's for. Yeah. That's, that seems to be how most people use Twitter is just to, to feel bad about things, right? Yeah. (laughs) What's the, is, is the handle like, uh, you don't like seventies music? What's that? It's, uh, it's from the, from the Mike Watts song from, uh, Bog or tugboat against the seventies seven zero s at the end yeah okay I'll have to check that out I don't think I've I don't think I've heard it before Ooh. Um, right yeah, on that that album's amazing <laughs> I'm on it yeah uh, my plugs I have nothing out of the ordinary you can tell your friends about the show if you're so inclined 
You can <clears throat> rate it on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. I'll uh, uh, that would be wonderful. Um, you can reach me at fugazi a to z at gmail dot com. You could join the Facebook group that I talked about earlier, just called the Alphabetical Fugazi, and you can talk about the song I've got coming up. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing greed. Until then, keep your eyes open. This is my last